This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So we're talking about sloth this weekend. If you want to be pretentious, you can call it sloth. <laughs> if you don't know whether it's acedia or acedia or achadia, I don't care and I don't know either. It depends whether you're, how you're going to Latinize it. Uh, I'll just go back and forth because I don't know either. Um, one of the things I want to, to do tonight is to articulate a little bit or some themes from a, from a book that I did a few years ago on not just how I think that sloth or achidia is a, a vice which can beset us, but a little bit about what it is, certainly not exhaustive. We'll have more sessions to deal with that. But also in some ways, and I'll admit I'm, I'm probably given to some flights of fancy here, um, of how sloth is not merely or only a personal vice which can beset me or you, but I want to suggest that at the moment it is perhaps a significant cultural vice or a vice of the culture itself. And as members of that culture, we get caught up into it, uh, and there's a kind of a collective struggle that we face given cultural norms. That'll be for you to, to consider and to press back on and to disagree with and so on. Um, Professor Hibbs tomorrow will uh, be speaking a little bit about the role of the way our sadnesses can work out. Uh, I'll talk a little bit tonight about how uh, in Aquinas' understanding there's a kind of sadness to, to sloth, uh, as well as some, uh, some reflections on the arts and how that relates. Uh, you'll see more of that tomorrow, and then I'll end tomorrow night with a, uh, some suggestions of how to resist sloth or how to overcome it, or at least in the version as I understand it to be. Okay? Um, I'm going to draw a little bit upon literature tonight. Uh, because I find that helpful. But I, I hope you have lots of questions. Um, I think good retreats like this are full of questions. So I hope you grab me in meals and so on, wherever is appropriate to ask and argue and to object, that'd be fine with me. A few years ago, um, the theorist William Dershowitz warned that the nation's top colleges were turning our students into zombies, he said. Now, Dershowitz noted that many of his students at Yale were bright, active, energetic. And yet he said that um, many of them seemed to be quite content to color in between the lines, and they didn't seem to view college as an intellectual exploration. They were here to do their work. Everyone, he said, dressed as if they were ready to go to an interview at a moment's notice. But they didn't actually see college as an intellectual adventure where they were going to learn something new. Yeah, in another essay, David Brooks, uh, interviewing some Princeton students, reports that they told him, sometimes we feel like we're just tools for processing information. We're just power tools. Now, I know that Yaleys are sad to begin with because they aren't the friars of Providence and are quite upset. But I wonder if you might, you, you might recognize something in Dershowitz's description of students at the moment. Talented, disciplined, accomplished, capable, and yet racked with anxiety in a sense that they can't keep up. Here's Dershowitz. Look beneath the facade of seamless well-adjustment and what you'll often find are toxic levels of fear, Anxiety, emptiness, aimlessness, and isolation. The prospect of not being successful terrifies students more than anything. Or as Mark Schiffman, uh, who was formerly chair of humanities at Villanova, put it, contemporary students are not majoring in physics or Greek. They are majoring in fear. Here's how Schiffman puts it. He says that Hunger Games is the novel of the generation. It's a little dated, but you remember Hunger Games, right? Katniss Everdeen, I'm, I'm the right one. It's not the Maze Runner, right? It's the other one. He says, the I'm quoting him, the trilogy Hunger Games depicts adolescents rigorously trained by adults for desperate but meaningless life or death competitions. 
Its dark emptiness resonates with students' latent unease and dissatisfaction with their educational regimen, as well as their worry that they're all honed up with no place to go. Afflicted with a desperate compulsion for competitive advantage, they rack up majors, minors, certificates, credentials, internships to keep them in the running for what they view to be an ever more elusive success. They're driven by fear, he says. They're majoring in fear. Now, I'm loath to suggest it, which isn't true. I'm just saying that for the recording. I'm loath to suggest it, but perhaps that's not a life especially well lived. And even more, it seems to me that's not a life merely of students with deadlines and tests and exams, but that students in many ways are merely modeling what their elders and teachers and parents and society have taught them to do, to be dressed up, to be racked with anxiety, driven for success, and not necessarily knowing what it's for. Many of your mentors, many of your teachers are like that now, racking up awards and not knowing why. Now, any of that ringing a bell, a sense of the frenzy of it all? Joseph Pieper calls this a culture of total work, never ends. You rest so you can work. Sunday is so you can work some more. Now, perhaps counterintuitively, I want to suggest for your consideration that part of the frenzy of busyness and work and the endlessness of it all is actually related to what earlier thinkers called sloth. That sloth is not necessarily merely laziness, the way that your grandmother accused you of being slothful on a Saturday, but that frenzy and busyness to no purpose itself can be a manifestation of sloth. A failure of desire and a failure of will for the fullness of life. I want to suggest instead that rather than laziness, Sloth is a failure of magnanimity. It's a failure to be great souled. And it's largely because we'd rather be free, or at least a certain understanding of freedom, without real commitments than we would like to be happy. That's how I understand sloth. I'll try to explore that with you. But first, a little bit of literature. Any of you read Cormac McCarthy? Some of you have heard me talk about this before. I love talking about Cormac McCarthy. He's probably most famous for No Country for Old Men or The Road. But of all the terrors, I know none worse than his character, the judge in The Blood Meridian. If you know the story, there's a gang, Ganton's gang, which is in the Southwest, collecting Apache scalps for profit from the government. Now, of course, once the government has put a bounty, it doesn't matter who they kill. They're scalping anyone they can find to take it for bounty. And so much of the story is Ganton's gang going across the Southwest, maiming, scalping, and desecrating everything they can find. But at one point, they are out of ammunition, out of gunpowder, and the Apaches are hard on their trail. And they're running across the desert in great fear. When suddenly, in the middle of the desert, sitting on a rock, completely hairless, bald and all, is the judge. And they follow the judge. He's described as a Moses leading them through a terrible desert. They follow the judge. He helps them make new gunpowder. And they describe the gunpowder as being very odd, no misfires. It cannot miss. And a brutal slaughter of the Apaches occurs. And at that point, the judge becomes the leader of the gang. And their gang is described as having a terrible covenant with him. He's very strange, though. At one point, he leads a disabled man around on a leash through the desert before killing him. He loves to destroy. Now, here's the image I want to point to. I think this is, this is really interesting. Hall, Judge Halden is portrayed as the most learned man 
in America, even though no one knows where, he, where he's from. His knowledge of geology, geography, natural history, literature, many languages, he discourses widely, and his authority over his interlocutors is absolute. But here's what's interesting. He carries a little notebook in which he sketches out plants and animals that he finds, but then he destroys the plant once he's sketched it. Or if he's cut a bird, he'll sketch the bird and then he'll kill the bird. At one point, he's asked why he does this. And this is what he says. The least freedom of the bird without his permission is an offense against him. The least freedom of anything without his permission is an offense against him. Once after destroying some Spanish armor that he found, throwing it into the fire, he's asked why he does that. And he says this, and I'll repeat it. Whatever exists in creation without my knowledge and without my consent, that may seem little or nothing to you, yet the smallest of a free thing can devour us. Any smallest thing beyond yon rock out of man's knowing. Only nature can enslave man. And only when the existence of each last entity is routed out and made to stand naked before man will he be properly suzerain of the earth. Now, he's with a group of uneducated bounty hunters, and they ask him, what's a suzerain? Any of you know? I had to look it up. And he says, a suzerain is a special kind of ruler, one who is able to countermand the commands of other rulers. Getting the image? The suzerain, the judge, is one who claims to be able to countermand the commands of God. Right? To have complete autonomy over nature, to have complete autonomy over himself, and to have complete autonomy over the moral laws. He accepts no responsibility except the responsibility that he has given to himself. That's the setup. I'm going to suggest that Judge Holden is a pretty good image of cultural sloth at the moment, and in two forms. Here's the first. In its first form, sloth is a hatred of responsibility. Hatred of responsibility. Acedia, the noonday demon, some of the uh, fathers called it, so-called because it strikes in the afternoon. You've had this experience. It's three o'clock. You're in the carol at the library. It's a Thursday. It's 3.01 on a Thursday. You're in the carol of the library. And what do you discover yourself doing? It's 3.03. Now listen to how Evagrius of Ponticus describes this. The noonday demon, this 4th century Egyptian monk. This is how Evagrius describes it. Sloth, acedia, the noonday demon, causes the monk to look continuously out the windows, looking out for something else. He's supposed to be at his prayers, but he's looking out the windows. And to step out of his cell and to gaze at the sun to see how far the sun is from the ninth hour. Where's the sun? It's there. Where's the sun? It's still there. You know that sense of time passing very slowly? And to look around here, there, whether any of his brethren is near. Distraction, something to do. Moreover, listen to this line. The demon sends him hatred against the place, against life itself, and against the work of his own hands. Hatred of place, hatred of life itself, and even hatred of the work of his hands against his responsibilities. Now, if any of you had this experience, you have an organic chemistry test tomorrow. What you're supposed to be doing is studying for organic chemistry. It is three o'clock. You're in the library. And what would you rather be doing than studying organic chemistry? Anything. 
<laughs> Anything. So you check your emails, you check your social media, you check, you check, you check. You find that it would be very good for you to help a friend. You call your mother. You haven't called your mom in weeks. But suddenly you call your mother. You're interested in your younger sister. Haven't talked to her since the beginning of the semester. Anything except the task at hand. Because what do you loathe at that moment? Organic chemistry. For the monk, his prayers just then. Now note, have you ever put yourself into a frenzy of busyness so as to not do the assigned task, the work of your hands at this moment? How many of you have cleaned your room in order to avoid organic chemistry? How many of you have ironed? <laughs> done dishes? Let's hear it. Tell me some things that you've done to avoid the work which is right there in front of you to do. Do tomorrow. Take the ridiculously long way to get home. The raw long way home. Very nice. Scenic route. I thrifted a lamp and a chair. You thrifted a lamp and a chair? Does that mean you got rid of or you got? I bought it. You bought it. Yeah, I needed a new chair right now. No, the chair was free. Oh, <laughs> even, even more precise. Color code my entire closet. Uh, color code your entire closet. Very good. Priest was like, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be in the library. Get to work. You color coded your academic game plan for your entire academic career. Uh, undergraduate career. Undergraduate but all you really needed to do was finish that page of organic chemistry. Or whatever. And then I printed it up. You're being slothful. Even though it was a frenzy of activity, it wasn't the activity that was the work at this time in this place that God had given you to do just then. Even though you were very busy color coding your closet, your academic calendar, you were going to church, you had holy hands, maybe all slothful. Sloth, in other words, need not be laziness in this form. It could in fact be a frenzy of activity racking up majors, minors, credentials, internships, successes, awards, and ribbons. Now, of course, in time, sloth does come to mean something more like inactivity, just not doing anything. But I want to suggest the deeper root here is not inactivity, but rather frustration and disgust at the work that God has given to you and the place that God has given to you and the life that God has given to you just now. Ever daydreamed about a better place at a better time when you should be doing your work? Ever done this number? If only or when I, then I will. You've done this before, right? If only I didn't have this, I would pray more. No, you won't. If you're lazy now, you'd be lazy then. Or when I finally fill in the blank, then I will. That's sloth as well. You've work to do just now. In Achady, the monk longs for a better place because, again, this is Evagrius, he abhors what is there and fantasizes about what is not. In Sloth, we abhor what is there, what is here. We abhor what is. I want to put this as we abhor limits and place and order and responsibility, particularly the concrete tasks ahead of us. Rather than lazing about, the slothful are often in a frenzy of action, now this, now that, in their disgust with the work of being attentive, watching over the world and the work that God has given them to do just now. It's not just indolence. 
Instead, it's a rejection of the burden of order, choosing something instead like the lightness of freedom, being able to flit here and there rather than attending to the difficult task at hand. It loves itself and it loves autonomy or a certain kind of autonomy more than it loves the concrete good. That's sloth. It rejects the weight of responsibility. Here's a lovely line or a lovely description from a Benedictine about it. In sloth, we can have the pell-mell rush for diversions. And the rush for diversions indicates the emptiness that surrounds us. This rush, this demand for satisfaction and the lack of satisfaction that we feel are inextricably intertwined. Nothing is a better example than this than the online world. Have you ever lost an hour clicking random links on Wikipedia? You were looking up something meaningful and suddenly you're checking out 1962 second baseman for the Dodgers and you don't know anything about baseball or care. That is looking for diversion. The more strongly your own individual life and its satisfaction becomes a center of focus, the stronger on the insistence that the trivialities of life feel like a prison. You would rather be elsewhere. Everyday life feels like a prison. Sounds very much like the slothful monk looking at the sun, waiting for it to move, or you in the carol waiting for dinner to be called. Time crawls and you feel a hatred of your work and the reality into which you have been thrown. You, in fact, like the judge, wish to kind of scratch out the world as it is and have a different world, a fantasy world, not the one which you have here. In sloth, you abhor what is and love what is not. You've done this. You've fantasized about other futures or other realities which are not yours just at the moment. And they're going to be amazing, won't they? Anyone wish to share about your amazing fantasy world? It might be sloth. Because you have a real world just now with real people and real opportunities and real tasks. Make sense what I mean? An abhorrence of the way the world is for you just now. But God is at work in the way the world is for you just now. And to wish for something else and to reject the responsibilities of this world is slothful. That's the first form. Hatred of the world, repugnance at being. Here's the second form of sloth, sadness. While Evagrius articulates sloth as a hatred against place, limits, and life, Aquinas explains sloth as a sadness at the divine good and as an aversion to acting. Sadness about the divine good and as a resistance or aversion to acting, to doing. As he explains, the ultimate good at which sloth feels sorrow is communion with God, friendship with God. Or, more generally, less theologically if you want, sadness at any idea of union and commitment. Now, that's very strange, since as I read Aquinas, communion with God is, in fact, our ultimate happiness and joy. And so sloth is an odd rejection of our own happiness. Now, that's very strange to consider. Sadness at the divine good is a sadness about our own well-being and our own happiness. The beatific vision is the divine good, is, our, is the ultimate end. To feel sad at its possibility and to feel an aversion against it is to feel sad about your own well-being and your own happiness. But of course, we know from our Augustine, we've never done anything except for the sake of happiness. And so you see the profound contradiction of sloth, a loathing of your own happiness, and then a refusal to do anything 
to contribute to it, to attain it, to cooperate with it. It's a sadness, in fact, at the possibility of divine charity offered to you. Charity rejoices in the divine good. Sloth resents it and moves against it. Sloth resists friendship with God because, it seems to me, of the burdens of commitment that such a friendship and the responsibilities and transformations that such friendships with God requires. In a certain kind of love of freedom, we can feel saddened at the costs of friendship. I don't know where I remember this, where this line is from. Amy and I saw this in a movie. Amy's my wife. We saw this in a movie, in a movie year ago, years ago. We think it's funny. I'll say, we'll say, I don't have time in my life for new friends right now. I don't have time in my life for new friends right now. But you've had that experience of someone, just anyone, a human person offering you friendship. And rather than thinking, oh, great, a friend, someone, a second self, someone with whom to live life, you feel something like the burden. I'll have to help them move. They will ask things of me. I will need to be available to them. You've had that sense, that experience? You're all shaking. You've been, or what about romantic attractions or romantic attachments? I can't tell you, especially how many young men over my career have sat in my office and said the following words. She seems great. I'd like to marry her. Okay. Or do you have any reasons I shouldn't ask her to marry me? No, not particularly. Week later. I love her. She seems great. I should ask her to marry me. Okay. Do you have any reasons, Snell, why I shouldn't ask her to marry me? Not really. A week later. I love her. I wish... What's the problem here? Well, commitment seems frightening because it will cost me things. That's sadness at friendship or sadness at the possibility of communion. Sloth in this form is sadness at the possibility of divine communion. Rebecca Canonic de Young puts it this way, friendship, any friendship, but friendship with God as well, requires not only an investment of time, but an investment of the self that's required for the relationship to exist and to flourish. And even more difficult, she says, are the accommodations of identity, who I am, what I'm for. From the perspective of individual freedom, this is my life, I should do with it as I wish, to be in relationship will change me and cost me. If you sense that there is a divine good, friendship with God, communion with God, and you resist it because of a sense that it will cost you and change you, that's sadness at the divine good and is sloth. Now, I'd suggest that what we are, even before we're thinking things, is desiring and loving creatures. I've been reading Bonaventure lately. I'm feeling awkward saying this here. <laughs> we have a kind of soul's thirst. And in a way that we don't explicitly understand, we're always reaching beyond ourselves in a kind of self-transcendence. The intellect has as its object being. The will has as its object good. We're self-transcending. We're moving towards what will fulfill us and move us from potency into act. That's fullness. That's actuality. That's happiness. And yet, what do we often do when we don't see the point of the end or if we're not convinced the end is worth it? We have an aversion to acting even for the proximate good. Remember, Aquinas says, sloth is sadness at the divine good and an aversion to acting. If the remote or ultimate end is viewed by us as something that causes us sadness, even if that ultimate end is our well-being, our joy, our fulfillment, our actuality, our perfection, 
if we view it as something which will cost too much, what then becomes the point of the proximate end right in front of us, which we could do in a way to contribute to our final end? I know you've had this experience at some point in high school. It's a very simple example. Senioritis or maybe in college already. You know that experience where you've, you've been accepted to Providence, you got the fat envelope. Did I, is that still what they send envelope? You got the fat, the proverbial fat envelope. You know you were going to Providence. You got the wonderful financial aid. You couldn't believe how little it was going to cost you and your parents to go. Yes? And then you were given some random assignment in high school chemistry class. It felt pointless. This is what I think Aquinas means by there is an aversion to acting. All actions are done for the sake of something. Some actions are instrumental, some actions are intrinsic. If we don't view the intrinsic good to which our life has purpose as being attractive, as drawing us, as being worth the effort, how in the world do we make sense of those instruments which are not intrinsic goods but are perhaps, in part, something on the way to the final end? They seem pointless. And one would rather not act. So a failure to be in love with the ultimate end also then gives us an aversion to acting in particular ways. As a result, quoting from de Young again, this is how Achadia takes its primary form for most of us most of the time. Having a kind of, in the first form, hatred of place and being, and second, a sadness of the divine good and an aversion to action. It becomes a profound withdrawal into self. A profound withdrawal into self. Action is no longer viewed as a gift of oneself, as the response to a prior love that calls us or enables our action and makes our action as a gift possible. It is seen instead as an uninhibited seeking of personal satisfaction in the fear of losing something, especially ourselves and our freedom. The desire to save our freedom at any price reveals, at its core, a deep enslavement to the self, to our own self. I think in the end, Achadia is a profound and misguided love of our own freedoms, a false freedom, such that we sink into our own freedom and we seek choice for its own, its own sake, so as to not have to become friends with God, so as to not have to embrace the work that God has given us to do. I think that's Judge Holden. Judge Holden, and I think this is a lot of us in our society right now, would rather be sovereign than responsible. Rather be sovereign than responsible. We would rather not attend to the truth of being, and we would rather not serve God. And because we don't want to seek the truth of being, we hate being and we hate the work of being that has been given us to do. And because we do not seek to serve God, we have sadness about divine friendship. Our two great forms of Achadia are hatred of responsible work and hate and a sadness about the divine friendship because we would rather be sovereign suzerains of all things and to sink into ourself, into our freedom. Now, is it possible that sloth might be the vice of our, of our time? Not just my vice kind of collective temptation, that it's in fact even a kind of cultural direction. The Judge Halden is kind of with us. Remember the image that Judge Halden was leading them through the desert like a new and perverse Moses, and they had entered into a terrible covenant with, with him? 
I'm wondering if we have given in to a great temptation or a terrible covenant of sloth. In Veritatis Splendor, John Paul II identifies two forms of contemporary disintegration. First, he says, is the rupture between freedom and truth. Our freedom is not tied to truth. We're not sure what freedom is for. The rich young man asks our Lord, what should he do? Sell your possessions, follow me. And the young man goes away. Remember the phrase? Sad. Goes away sad, for he had many possessions. Sadness at the divine good. So freedom and truth are separated. And second, John Paul II says, the second disintegration is between faith and morality. Freedom and truth are severed. Faith and morality are severed. The first, which is a philosophical rupturing, abandons freedom or leaves freedom to a kind of subjectivistic choice without any guidance from the truth of being. We know we are free. We know we can choose, but we're not sure what the truth of our choice is. We're not sure what the rational principle guiding us towards our end is. So we become convinced that the purpose of choice is choice. The, uh, you know, the music, they have a dentist's office. The music in the anteroom of hell will be Sinatra, I did it my way kind of thing. We love choice. The second, which is the rupture of faith and morality, is a theological rupturing. And it renders faith extrinsic and unrelated to our action. We've got this life of action, business, and doing, and study. And over, over there is the world of faith, but they don't have much to do with each other. And so we have moral principle, which is not related to faith, and faith, which is perhaps a matter of the heart and perhaps a matter of heaven, has nothing to do with the here and now and the concrete realities of life and choice. So on the one hand, the late Pope asks if we have sundered freedom from truth, choice from responsibility, if we are violating the work that God has given us to do, which is to work in the truth, to be responsible in keeping with the truth, which is the first form of sloth, isn't it? He says there are two sunderings. One is the sundering of action from truth, choice from truth, which is, I think, how I described in the end, a hatred of responsibility and a love of freedom. On the other hand, we have a sundering of faith from morality. And so our actions are governed by a not ultimate horizon. And not governed by an ultimate horizon of friendship with God, we increasingly struggle to see what the point of any of our action is. That's the second form of sloth, isn't it? Sadness at the divine good and an aversion to acting. I feel like I'm getting um, clearer glances about the first form of sloth than the second. If there's not an ultimate end, why are you doing what you're doing? What gives anything that you're doing purpose? So... You're told you can take a journey of a thousand steps. You take your thousand steps and you're told the journey requires another thousand steps. You take another thousand steps. You're told the journey requires another thousand steps. Pretty soon you start to think, this journey's not going anywhere. And they tell you, let's take a thousand steps. Do you? What's the point? It's not going anywhere. And so you are resistant to taking the step. There's an aversion to action and it kind of collapse. I think that there is for us now, many of us in our time, a repugnance or resistance to the idea of order. Nothing can get a, a, a sort of young urban professional wilder and more angry than to suggest that there is a moral norm and they might not be in keeping with that moral norm. How dare you? You even know how this goes. Who are you to say? Yes? 
We have a repugnance against order. What is it that our society is in love with? If Augustine in the Confessions was in love with love, what are we in love with? Choice. We're in love with choice, are we not? But for what purpose? I'm suggesting that for many of our your peers, there is a refusal to acknowledge the weight of God's glory. And so because there's not a weight of God's glory, the tasks and work around them become things to do in a kind of frenzy, but they have no point. They have no purpose. They're utterly horizontal so as to do the next thing, which is to do the next thing, which is to do the next thing. And so they become majoring in fear, and that's it. As a result, I think that we're tempted to view the world, in Heidegger's phrase, as a standing reserve. It's just there as a kind of resource for us to use. What are others? Objects to use. What's the world? Resource to use. What's school? Something to get through, to be credentialed, to move on. Does school have any innate intrinsic purpose? What do you think your peers think? Does school have an innate intrinsic purpose? Maybe. I suspect a lot of them probably don't think so. It's something to work through. And if you can work through it quickly, you would. And so rather than viewing ourselves in the world as creatures full of God's weight and full of integrity and purpose, we and the world and others are just kind of there waiting to be used, waiting to be consumed. And when the satisfactions diminish, so too does the attraction for the object and for the thing. The world becomes a problem to be overcome. Judge Halton leads a boy around the desert on a leash to use. Now, John Paul II warned repeatedly against an irrational account of freedom and what he thought was the violence lurking behind that irrational account of freedom. That's what he calls crimes against life would be justified in the name of freedom, he says, in Veritatis Splendor. We're not so different from Judge Halden when... Our own system in the worlds of John Paul II no longer recognizes and respects the essential link to truth, and choice is a desire to emancipate itself from all forms of tradition and authority. And so the person ends up by no longer taking as the sole and indisputable point of reference for his own choice the truth about good and evil, but only his subjective and changeable opinion or indeed his selfish interest and whim. Sloth, I'm suggesting, is to be in love with a misguided understanding of freedom. And so to hate responsibility and to hate the demands and costs that friendship with God would bring. And everything becomes a frenzy of pointless activity, mostly to distract ourselves. Michael Hanby, teaches just across the street, describes that culture. He calls this boredom. This is from a great essay of his called The Ontology of Boredom, but it's really just sloth. He says, our culture, I love this, I love this passage. Our culture assumes that our lives are innately and intrinsically meaningless without the constant flow of stimulation. Never checked your social media to convince yourself that you still exist and still matter? Like, I exist. Have you ever checked your social media and you haven't, um, no one has noted you? And you look for more stimulation? Because your life is innately and intrinsically meaningless without the flow of stimulation and distraction. A stream, he says, inevitably subject to the law of diminishing returns. Remember when you first um, 
academics do this a lot. They get that first article. They're very excited about it. It gets 10 readers. The book is reviewed and they're so excited. And then 10 years later, they get it. They get two reviews and they think, what, two reviews? Who am I? Right? I should have more reviews. You're like this on, uh, on, on any kind of satisfaction. At first, five is enough, and then five doesn't seem to be enough, and you need 10, but then 10 doesn't seem to be enough, and then you need 50, and then 50, because it's subject to the law of diminishing returns. But then he says this. What that means, Henby says, is we start with the assumption that there's nothing here. There's no self, no structure, no form, no teleology, no final cause. We're just, he says, a knotting. This is sort of play on nothing, and the idea of removing or erasing, there's a knotting here. We're, not, we're nothing. In fact, it's at the absence of things. And so we, um, don't have in, we don't view ourselves as having intrinsic purpose or direction. And so we also can't be satisfied because the world seems to us to also be knotting, he says. So Hanby suggests that in contemporary boredom, I want you to think about this. In contemporary boredom, there's a double form of nihilism, or what I'm calling a double form of sloth, which is the world cannot compel me. It is not interesting, and it is not good, and it does not serve a purpose in itself. And I'm not the sort of person who can be interested in the world or compelled by the world or made better by my interaction with the world. Have you ever had this experience? The world feels boring, but you realize the world's not boring. You just can't be captivated by it. Had that experience? Oh, come now. You're you're like stoic fate. You've never had that experience? No, I have. (laughs) You know Chesterton's line? I think this is Chesterton. There's not a boring world. There's just people who are bored. Just boring people. That's a kind of nihilism or an aversion to acting or a sadness at being. So we find the world is not, we find ourselves is not compelled by the world. And so we consume ourselves and we consume everything in a kind of freedom, which looks in a frenzy to find meaning that we cannot discover in the world. Why are we attempting to whip up in such great anxiety, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of purpose, because we are not convinced that the world is good and we are responsible to it, and we're not convinced that God is present to us and is willing to give himself to us in friendship, or that if he is, we don't want it because it would cost too much. That's sloth. All right, we've got lots of time for questions. Please. This is going to be a little bit, um, maybe you're, I assume you're a philosophy. I'm a philosopher by training, yes. Yes. Yep, the question was, am I a philosopher? Yep, by training. That's, that's kind of the introduction question. Um, just because it just seems like a lot of the stuff you're talking about choice and being in love with choice seems very existentialistic, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a philosopher by training. I have hardly any training in anything, but it's just, I did read Sartre a little bit, and I have read that, and he says that you just are, you don't have any essence, you just find yourself existing, and because you just find yourself that, basically, you can do then, you can form yourself into whatever you want, and it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's just, would it be fair to say that a lot of, first, would it be fair to say that a lot of that kind of modern boredom or modern being in love of choices flows from that manner of thinking. 
Yeah, so the question is, this sounds a little bit like existentialism. Does it relate to Sartre's sense that we have existence prior to essence and there can be a kind of boredom from that? Um, so it's being and nothingness Sartre is the name of one of Sartre's key texts, yes? And there is all sorts of reflections in people like Heidegger and Sartre on terms like angst, anxiety, ennui, the sense of the pointlessness of things, that things don't hang together and go anywhere. Now, why? Now, your grandparents, not maybe not literally your grandparents, but people your grandparents read about, they were very excited in the late 60s to discover freedom. It hadn't existed before, and they invented it in 1968. Freedom, was, freedom came into being in 1968. Because it was forbidden to forbid, they were going to exist in a world of self-creation, self, self-construction, as opposed to a world of tradition, responsibility, moral strictures, and so on. They viewed things like moral law as always being an external constraint upon freedom. Book to read here, by the way, is The Sources of Christian Ethics by a very great Dominican survey of Pinkers, yes? A sense that moral law always was an external force cramping down in our freedom. What freedom is, is to expand our sovereignty and our zone of sovereignty as far as possible, Yes. I have this much sovereignty, I would be more free if I had this much sovereignty. But law, tradition, religion, it all comes as arbitrary, confining, cribbing limitations, which are arbitrary. Okay? That was, that's a story. I'm simplifying it, of course. If that's what you view law is, remember for Thomas, law just is an ordinance of reason, among other things, but it's an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by one who has care of the community. An ordinance of reason is always, in a sense, the way that God governs us through our own natures and through our own governance towards our well-being and towards our flourishing. Note the different stories. Story number one, God determines not only what will happen, but how it will happen, and God governs us through ourselves. He has given us to ourselves as free and responsible and as participate with those who participate in the eternal law. So is morality an external constraint upon us or is morality merely freedom in truth working out in keeping with our own well-being, our own perfection, our own teleology towards our own well-being? Of course, a teleology requires something supernatural for its ultimate fulfillment, which nature cannot itself provide, but it still points in that direction. Yes. As opposed to You don't have a nature, but are condemned to be free and to make your nature and to make your own freedom. In what direction? How? What's the content? If all tradition and all rules and all reason is all confining upon my freedom, what's my freedom for? Or to, I think, misquote um, the great, the big Lebowski. Nihilism is exhausting. (laughs) Did I get it right? Nihilism is exhausting because you have to construct anew or you have to be authentic in your freedom. So so in response to the question, I'm not trying to do just a sort of intellectual history here. I'm trying to point to two moments in intellectual history, very briefly, Evagrius, 4th century, Thomas, 13th, and to suggest that despite the differences of culture and place and language, They're on to something about our own moment, which is in our society in the West just now, 
I don't think we know what we're for. And so we have collapsed to a sense of being for the endless exercise of choice. But that endless exercise of choice hates commitment and hates responsibility. It views it as a trap. What does God tell, what does God in the garden, thinking Genesis 1 and 2, tell Adam and Eve to do? Basically to work. To be, to be at work. To be at work. What does our Lord do when he comes to earth for a long time? In the, in the hidden years, what does he do? He just works. He grows in wisdom and stature. He just works. Ordinary, ordinary human work. Was that also part of the salvific work of God? Or was that irrelevant and pointless? Also part of the salvific work of God, it seems to me. So when you're sitting down to your organic chemistry, and there's a sense in which what's on offer to you right there in the responsibility to do your organic chemistry at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday, to like our Lord, be at your work. But what does it feel like in sloth? Like death. Doesn't it? Because what would you rather do? Anything other than this. That's sloth. Anything other than this. Why? No real reason. When you're in the flights of fantasy where you're imagining another world always better than this one, you're always taller, you have better hair, you're faster, whatever you, whatever you are, you know the fantasy worlds that you create for yourself? What are the odds of that coming to be? What are the odds that the world that you already inhabit and the tasks you already inhabit and the friends you already have coming to be? Certain. And yet, what do we tend to do? In fantasy, to abhor what's there. I'm not trying to do big, fancy intellectual history. I'm trying to come to terms with a particular temptation that people who are addicted to freedom have. And we're freedom addicts. That makes sense. You think I'm right about that? Who's skeptical that we're free? That I about my claim that we're freedom addicts? Choice for choice, not knowing why. Anybody skeptical? Please. I'm a little nervous to say that I'm a freedom addict. Uh, I think I'm actually terrified so much yeah. of my freedom that I Good. rather let go of it completely. Good. Very nice. Say more about that. So the response was maybe being terrified of freedom and rather letting it go. Tell me more about that. What does that look like? To whom? To be free means if, to, to be able to make the choice for my betterment. Um, Good. To be able to pursue my studies, pursue my friendships, pursue, pursue my relationship with God. Okay. So real freedom is to pursue studies, pursue relationships, pursue freedom relationship with God. And instead, what do you do? Doom scroll. On, on Doom scroll. Yeah. <laughs> what does the monk do in the third hour? He looks at the sun to see if it has passed. What are your favorite doom scrolling sites? We'll learn about your politics just now. Well, I don't know if I can say they're my favorite because I hate them all. Okay. <laughs> Everybody knows this, right? You doom scroll. The world's coming to an end. Everything's awful. And you feel kind of good about it. Like, you're right. What should you be doing? Your work. <laughs> or at your prayers. Or with your friend. Or acts of charity. 
or fulfilling your responsibilities. So when you say you're afraid of freedom, I get what you mean there. I think what that means is you're afraid of the real substance of freedom, or what John Paul II is, would think of as the linking of truth and freedom or being and freedom, which really is to your perfection, your well-being, your relationship with God. But what would you rather do than be friends with God? Swipe right. You know the story of the mess of pottage, selling your birthright for a mess of pottage, right? Has anything been more uh, like selling your birthright for a mess of pottage than giving up friendship with God in order to have online distractions? Really? The purpose of life is to click to the next, to doom scroll? That's sloth. It's a form of sloth. It can be very busy. You can fill a whole day in 15-minute increments of nothing. And you can feel pretty good about it because you are doing things, but it's all sloth. The, with the hat. I was hoping there was a BC hat for a second. I'm sorry. Uh, so I feel like I study education at Providence College. Great. A lot of it, I think about this in terms of like being a teacher. Good. Right. And I feel like, especially as educators, I see a lot of like my observations, like teachers who just get like busy work. Like, so like, True. Can just like, so like it takes a load off the teacher from like having to do like intensive grading and like, but actually doesn't do anything like fulfilling to the students. And I guess like, what is, what is like, like some of your response to that as like someone who's like in, in, in the practice of academia, but also like seeing like, because I feel like students notice that too. Like sure. when, we're, when we're given a sign that clearly has no intrinsic value other than just like, you know, for the sake of doing work, yeah. I'm not going to be interested in it, right? But it's like, I also have to do it because like, if I'm not doing it, that's also a problem. Yeah, good. So the question is about, uh, about teaching as a teacher or being a student and the sense of busy, filling up busy work instead of meaningful work. So it's always the case that there are parts of learning and teaching which are just drudgery, right? Sometimes you just have to memorize case endings and it's not that exciting and it's not, you know, it's not divine contemplation. You just got to memorize case endings or the periodic table or learn the formula or what have you. On the other hand, there is a sense that if we ask what the point of education is about, the point of education really is about not merely mas mastery, which is how I think we tend to think of it, but it's much more like delight, isn't it? I'm going to talk about this tomorrow night uh, in, in the final talk about a kind of resistance to sloth. I think we've been taught to think that education in itself is essentially pointless. And it serves one of two functions. Credentialing, you get the little piece of paper and now you are somebody. And you can prove you're somebody because you have the piece of paper. Or it's a kind of skill set so that you can perform something else beyond the education. Now, both of those assume that education itself is, in a sense, intrinsically meaningless. Not accomplishing much. Always instrumental towards another end. Now, if you think that the activity itself is pointless, there's two ways to cover for that, it seems to me. The one way to cover for that is to check out. You're given pointless, meaningless activity. What's one proper response? Or what's one kind of response? Check out. What's another kind of response to cover over the 
meaninglessness or the apparent meaninglessness of the endless hamster wheel spinning quickly but going nowhere, what do you do? You run faster. And you look at the hamster in the wheel to your left and you look at the hamster in the wheel to your right and you laugh because you're running faster than they are. Your little wheel's spinning so fast. <laughs> teachers do this a lot. I think especially young teachers who are not confident that they know what they're doing. They attempt to demonstrate their own credibility and validity as teachers by assigning more. By assigning more. Read. I remember I had a teacher who assigned me all of Kant's first critique in a week. Well, that was meaningful. And in the second week, we had the second critique. And in the third week, we had the third critique. So I had read all the three critiques. Now, compare that to the experience you've had. So delightful. You've had this experience. You sit down to write a paper. It's 7 a.m. 7 a.m. It's due at noon. You've had all semester to do it, but here you are. You are ironing at six. You're color coding your entire academic career at four. You're organizing your colors of your sweaters at two. Now you're out of time, time to work. You know you've had this experience. You're just like typing away. You're not plagiarizing technically because there's citations, but it's a lot of paraphrasing off the opening and ending of a journal article you didn't read all the way through. I know none of you have any idea what I'm talking about, but then suddenly, Something clicks and you're interested. A question emerges. Entirely different, is it not? Now it's self-directed. Now it feels as if it has a point. Now it feels as if you are at stake in the project, not just the grade. Because you are giving something of yourself to the work. You are here in this work. And time goes very differently then, doesn't it? Hours can go past. Have you had this experience, something like that, and now it's time to turn it in, and you realize just as it's time to hit, you know, FN, F, FN, F7, which is like spell check and all the editing you do because you're out of time because it started too late, and then you realize just at the last moment, you were incorrect about the reading. You got Shakespeare wrong. Dante doesn't quite say that. You have a new insight. You have a real moral test right there, don't you? Do I turn in something I think is incomplete and false? Do I ask for an extension? Do I just keep going? I once ripped up 90 pages of my dissertation because it was wrong. Oh, it hurt. And in order to avoid the temptation of trying to fix it, I deleted it so that I couldn't tinker with it. Because suddenly the question was mine. And it had point and purpose, and I was mo motivated by love. Good teachers do two things, it seems to me. Three things. One, they remember that they're teaching persons, not just content. There are persons in front of them, which, which of all creation are the only things created for their own sake, is persons. Two, they arrange data in the manner most proper or efficient, capable for the, for the person in front of them to get the requisite insights to understand for themselves, right? And three, they evoke and elicit and lead loves out of their students. Busy work doesn't do that. And the frenzy of racking up more and more is proof that we don't know what education is for. We now have an Olympian version of education, faster, stronger, higher, as opposed to have you loved more attentively, more responsibly? Have you been more in keeping with the truth than not? It's a different story. And one is genuinely free and the other one isn't. Does that seem right? Seems right to me.
And we all know the difference. Other questions or objections? Please. Question, but I'm, I'm currently a, a master's student here. Um, I, I did my undergrad, you know, I can say at Dershowitz's uh, diagnosis is very accurate. Um, but I think something in that is with the version of sloth can be seen largely as laziness or some kind of yeah. um, reticence. Um, I think many put upon themselves, you know, this, this pressure to work harder, you know, it's just more disciplined. If I just put more effort into it, then I can solve this problem. Yep. And I think, and I think that's something you're getting at is that can, that can make it worse even. It's just becoming more busy um, can also defeat the purpose. So I guess my question is, like, what what is the right antidote to sloth? Like, how, how do you... So the question is, what's the antidote to sloth? Um, well, you got to come back tomorrow, obviously. <laughs> if I told you tonight, you wouldn't come back tomorrow. Um, I think it, it behooves us to pay attention to a way that people talk now, which is not a way that people always used to talk. So you're going to be at like Christmas parties in the next little bit. Keep a little mental tally. This is how you don't have any friends when you do things like this, but that's okay. Keep a little mental tally of asking people, how are you? And them saying, busy. All right, busy. All right, busy. What you been up to? I don't know, busy. And it's always said as if it's a kind of complaint, but it's also also it's also said with a sense of pride because I have purpose because I am conspicuously busy. I'm conspicuously busy. If I weren't conspicuously busy, what would I be? John Paul II says, we have bec- because we've forgotten the truth of being, we have turned to having and doing. Having and doing are fine things, but they follow upon being. Second act follows first act. If one forgets first act and one is engaged only in second act without an understanding or a commitment to what the first act is, what becomes the point of the acting? Just to do it. Conspicuous busyness. That's the Olympian mode of education. That's the harried, anxious form of our contemporary life. And eventually, if that begins to have diminishing returns and one realizes that you're all honed up and nowhere to go and the adults have set you free into a world where you're running quickly as possible, this is the Hunger Games reference, as quickly as possible, but it serves no purpose, how is your response to the action that you have to do in front of you? Aversion. So I want to ask this directly. Does the, so much of your work feel, one, frenzied? More, 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 more. Hurry, 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 hurry. Scurry, scurry, scurry. And two, pointless. To show of hands. This means I strongly agree. Middle is I'm sort of neutral. Down means I really disagree. Okay? Strongly agree. Eh, neutral, disagree. How many of you feel sort of two poles, frenzy of doing a lot of work and a sense of, eh, it doesn't really matter. Everybody's got to vote. Come on. Now, disagree, neutral, disagree, neutral to high, not voting, refusing to commit. <laughs> 20th century person, I have no opinion on this. Agree, sort of agree, neutral, neutral, very agree, strongly agree, oh no, father. Agree, neutral. There, I'm seeing more agreements than disagreements. Tell me why. 
you're 19 years old, you're 20 years old, how in the world do you feel frenzied to work and not think it means anything? You're too young to be that old and tired out. Um, I, I'm in the development of Western civilization and our professors assign a lot of reading and I know myself that I'm not really a fast reader so it just feels like I need to put more time into it but at the same time, I know that it's not enough time for me to finish the book and have enough, like a fruitful knowledge of what I'm reading about and understanding, so it just feels like... You're just moving the pages. Yeah. Just turning the pages. Have you read the assignment? Yes, my eyes skimmed every word. <laughs> Did you read, mark, and inwardly digest the book? No. So what was the point of reading the book? Negligible. Do you wish to read? Are you discovering? How many of you in college have found your love of reading with maybe you came to college with a love of reading diminishing in college? That's a, that's a tragedy. That's a scandal. But a lot of that is because it feels pointless. How many of you have developed patterns and techniques of coping with reading by not really reading? You have ways around it. It feels pointless. How many of you have ever done this? I know you have. I know you have. You have looked at the last page of the assignment. It's like page 55 is the last page. And then you look at this page and you're like 21. You count how many pages you have. I know students who mark the pages backwards, right? 24, 23, 22, 21, 29. So they know how much more they have to do. Groaning with effort to get it done because the point is to Get it done, that slot. Even though, what are they doing? Working, working, working. Thanks very much, all. More tomorrow. Appreciate it.